0: startup game has changed and only the most agile will make it to the other side. I'm your host, Michael Martocci, founder and CEO of SwagUp, and this is Out of the Woods, a show where we interview top startup founders, executives, and investors to hear how they're navigating the rapidly changing economic environment. We'll share real-time insights, strategies, and stories from those in the trenches with the goal to help as many teams level up their execution and make it out of the woods. So with that in mind, let's dive in. Well, Welcome back to the Out of the Woods podcast. This is our fourth episode. Super excited to have a fellow Miami resident, even though I'm now in Fort Lauderdale for the time being, but don't tell anybody. Um, Greg Gallant, CEO, founder of Muckrake, one of our customers as well at Swag up So we're super excited to to dive into this conversation. So appreciate you uh, jumping in here.
1: Great. Thanks so much for having me on, Michael.
0: Yep, for sure. So as I said before, you know the point of this podcast is all to just help as many founders and operators out there get through some of these uncertain kind of economic times as possible. Um, I think that the you know the environment has changed a ton in the last couple years. Um, you know, if the last three, four, five years has been kind of go, 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 venture backed, fueled kind of mindset, but you you kind of took a much different path. Um, you know, bootstrapped the company for the last however long it's been. Was it over eight years or something like that?
1: Uh, thirteen, depending on thirteen. Height, huh?
0: <laughs> That's crazy. So th- 13 years of sustainable, profitable growth. So, you know, before we jump into some of the tactics, you know, what, can you share just a quick background? I know you've been podcasting since 2005. It looks like you've been an entrepreneur since you're like 14 years old. What's kind of the the Greg story?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I started my first business at 14, building websites for companies. This was like, I guess, late 90s. So I, the pitch wasn't like, why should you hire me to build your website? The pitch was, why should you why have, have website? a website? I have an email address when phone and fax works fine. So I got the kind of.
0: What were some of the pushback you were getting back then?
1: It was, will my customers have an internet connection? Why can't they look me up in the phone book? Who's going to check out this website rather than look at my brochure? So it was just a uh, a totally different world. Then you had to convince them that their whole website shouldn't be in flash and just issues that are kind of unimaginable uh, today
0: yeah was that the so that the first business was helping companies get online and then what you know it, it sounds like you had like a ton of different types of businesses and ideas growing up what, what were some of the other ones
1: yeah see well with that first business yeah my, my customers range from uh a clinical trial company to a, a local chain of newspapers to a french philosopher so i got <sighs> to see all kinds of businesses uh through doing that business um of my own and I kept kept that business up uh throughout high school and college and then it was actually in uh in college I got the opportunity to work as an associate producer at cnn.com or I should say I first spent the summer working at a venture firm uh, it's kind of ironic since I would successfully avoided <laughs> venture capital my whole life since same and uh, okay. which is a great thing to see about your your business too, and uh, you know makes makes us proud to work with a fellow fellow bootstrap company.
0: How'd you get the um, How'd you get the newspaper company online? Like, what did they use their online presence for? Was it to sign up for subscriptions? Was it to read the digital version of the paper? Or was it just to like have an advertisement online? It,
1: it was actually really funny. So I got it was called the uh, Long Islander. It's still going. It's a local chain of weekly papers. They own five five weekly papers, including the the namesake, uh, the Long Islander. I grew up in Long Island, New York. Uh, And funny enough, it was actually founded by Walt Whitman way back in the day, obviously. And I I just wrote them a letter. I didn't know anyone there. Uh, I couldn't bring myself to cold call them, and I couldn't send them a cold email because they didn't have an email address yet. So I I literally wrote them a letter, it up, put it in the mail, the editor-in-chief <laughs> called me back. And originally it was, yeah, mostly to drive subscriptions. They didn't have a way to make revenue directly off the website, but they did want to put their content on the web. So built them their first website. Uh, I'm trying to remember, I think they would mail me a diskette with, with their articles and then later it, it would they'd email me their, their articles for every week that we'd put online, hand-coded. I was wow. also ahead of my time in GIF making. I made a GIF of... The, they had an illustrated version of Walt Whitman as part of their logo, so I cut out his mouth like an old Monty Python sketch, if you ever saw those, and had his mouth move up and down with a little yep, bubble yep. next to him saying "Subscribe to the Long Islander." <laughs> but unfortunately, their publisher thought it was too too crass, so they wouldn't let me use it.
0: It's too edgy for them.
1: Yeah, but a lot, a lot of people don't know GIFs were a thing back in the uh, back in like the mid to late '90s, and it just took a while before they entered uh pop culture
0: what was what was your most interesting client back then
1: well my very first client was a detective agency where they were they'd be hired by insurance companies to catch people committing insurance fraud so they had all these illustrations made of like someone skiing with their crutches against the tree you know implying that they were just wearing the crutches to uh yeah yeah yeah. To defraud the insurance company, so they had these illustrations already made, but we actually made them into gifts. So you'd see the per- the person moving through with this, you know, down the slopes while their while their uh, crutches were hung up. So it was really, and that was that was also really interesting because the um it was a father and son business, and the two of them did not get along. So they emailed me <laughs> the conflicting directions on what to do with the website. Um. Also-
0: How'd you decide who to, whose direction to take?
1: Yeah, it would usually be that I'd have to then CC the other one and, and get them to work it out between each other.
0: So you were like part mediator therapist as well as, you know, certain business consultant and website builder.
1: Full, full service.
0: Were you, were you trying to help them from a strategic lens of like how to leverage the internet to drive business or was it just like, Hey, I can just get you online?
1: Very much strategic. And that's actually what led to a lot of my later interest in business was when when I started that business at 14, I was thinking I wanted to be a computer programmer. I I was kind of the kid who, you know, wasn't playing sports and was at home, uh, (laughs) you know, just programming on the computer, playing with playing with the computer. And I learned very quickly that I what I really enjoyed when I worked with these clients was figuring out how the website would help further their business, get them leads, help them communicate with their current customers, et cetera. And then I'd also found some friends of mine who were programmers who I'd get to help me build the website. It was only when I started working with friends of mine who were programmers that I realized I was not a good programmer because I saw how good they were. That's that's
0: like me, I can go on like Wix and make a website, but I'm not gonna code anything.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so it's good, it's important to know what you're good at. So it both gave me respect for great programmers. And now I have my, my co-founder and CTO Lee Semmel, who's just an amazing, amazing at that side of it. So it's like, you know, I, I have respect and we have a whole development team. So I have a lot of respect for what they do and I know I can't do it as well, but from doing it myself, I still built the first websites totally on my own and was writing the HTML and customizing Perl scripts at the time. So I know like enough to be dangerous and I could, especially in the early days I was logging the bugs myself I mean, a muckrack uh, sorry to jump ahead but but it gave me the skill set so that I could like log bugs and talk about how the application infrastructure would work and do some of the product development in a deeper way than I think I ever could have if I'd never kind of got to my chops uh, computer programming
0: yep so what, what was like the insight that you know switching ahead to muckrack like how did you get involved in this PR space and realize that there was a problem that needed technology to solve? It was it even a technology company from the start or has it evolved a lot? Like what what was the foundation?
1: It was always a tech company, but, uh, you know, maybe, maybe kind of my, my own start with podcasting is what led me into this. So when I graduated college in 2005, I saw podcasting was just becoming a thing. It wasn't even called podcast back then it was called RSS feeds with enclosures. Because people were taking RSS feeds, which were still pretty new, and just pointing them to MP3 files. And so, um, being so, I, I got really interested in this idea that, like, oh, you could get media onto an iPod. So I figured, let me just try starting a podcast. And from having done my own business and worked at a venture firm, I knew there was a lot of hunger, I, or at least I always had a lot of hunger to learn how other entrepreneurs did it. And now there's a ton of media about that. Uh, but at the time it was like, you wanted to know how another entrepreneur did it. Really your only option was like Inc magazine. And there were a couple of early blogs like Fred Wilson's blog and Brad Pell.
0: Where you can read like Sam Walton's book from like 1970s or something. Yeah,
1: exactly. Uh, from, from way back when, but yeah, there was very little resources. Um, uh, so, and, and all you get is like this 500 word story, like, Hey, Michael started a company and now it's, now it's, you know, a, a huge success, yeah. but it's like, wait, well, how? There's no tactics. Yeah. No tactics. <laughs> what happened in the middle? Nothing relatable. Yeah. Nothing in the middle. So I was like, well, let me just interview entrepreneurs. I think that'd be a great format for a show. So it's kind of like how I built this 10 years before how I built this actually got launched. I was like, let me just interview entrepreneurs to see how they got started so my first guest, I called up uh, Dick Costolo, who at the time had a 15, I think maybe 20 person company feed burner, uh, which later got sold to Google for hundred million. And, and Dick went on to be the, uh, the CEO, CEO of, the of Twitter, Twitter right? public. Yeah. And, but at the time I just called up their main phone number. I was like, Hey, who could I speak to about setting up an interview with your CEO? It's like, this is Dick. I'm the CEO. Like, oh, hey, uh,
0: he answered the wanna,
1: call. Want to come on my podcast? I had no credibility. The website wasn't even built yet. And he's like, "Yeah, sure. I've never been on a podcast before. I should really, really try it out." Uh, but one condition. I'm like, "What's that?" He's like, "You, you can't call the this landline for our company. You got to call me on my cell phone to interview me." And I knew very little about audio, but at the time, all the guidance was never interview someone. On their phones service. The, the service was really bad back, or the audio quality on cell phones was really bad back in 2005. But I had nothing to lose. So I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll, uh, I'll do it. But just for my own curiosity, do you mind if I ask why? It's like, yeah, well, we only have one line for our company. So if I'm talking to you for an hour, customers won't be able to get through.
0: <laughs> Makes sense. So
1: that, that was my start. I was worried. I'm like, this guy's CEO of a podcast or of an RSS analytics company, only be pretty boring. Lucky for me, though, he was actually a graduate of Second City, that uh, comedy school that, that like um, uh, Steve Carell and all these other like super famous actors came out of. So he, he was a great guest to start with. And then I got...
0: How do you even take like sell cell audio and turn it into a recorded
1: podcast? <laughs> it's really funny. So this will definitely date me, but there was something called a voice modem in the 90s which was a, um, there was this idea in the nineties that you'd replace your very reliable $30 answering machine with your $2,000 unreliable computer. So they made this thing where it would take the modem, you know, what what you would dial up to AOL or Prodigy or CompuServe with, but it would let you answer a call. It would answer a call while you were gone and record someone's message act like an answering machine and record it to the computer. So one of the ancillary functions of the voice modem was that you could record a phone call on it if you just plugged it into the same landline as the rest of your home. So actually I had to go, this was when I graduated college, I had to go back to my parents' house, dig out this, they'd stopped making them by then. So I had to dig out this old computer for my parents' like closet that no one had used in five years, see if it would still boot up, which luckily it did, hmm. figure out how to record using the voice modem and then plug it in in their house so they get on the, the landline in a different part of the house.
0: It's a lot harder than what we just did to get this. Uh, oh yeah.
1: Now we just plug it into Riverside. It's it's so much easier now to record a podcast and to, uh, to listen to them. Back then you had to, iTunes hadn't even integrated it yet. So you had to download what was called a podcatcher piece of software. a third party software that would check the podcast. Uh, it was like listening for
0: rss feeds yeah
1: download it and then in this very hacky way add it to your itunes library then you had to sync the ipod to your computer and hope it would properly sync half the times it wouldn't then you'd finally get the audio on your ipod and only then could you go for a run and listen to. The
0: what was the first ipod that you had
1: oh man it was it was one with a little spin wheel i think it might have been the second or third generation podcast uh our ipod
0: yeah, i think i think my first one was maybe the mini that was like they came in different colors oh, yeah, yeah that
1: one came later that, that was a cool that was then, very cool
0: then they had the uh they had the shuffle there was that other mini that was like very thin my dad had the one that had the circle but then the four buttons up top yeah. i don't know if you remember that it had the wheel with the four buttons up top. that was the second one I think, yeah that that might have been the one, one that i had
1: i remember it had the wheel and it was just so magical that you could have like a thousand you know like pretty much oh, your man. whole like library of cds that you ripped you know your thousand uh, albums or whatever it was in your pocket
0: yeah, I had the, I had the iPod video that they used, like the YouTube song to kind of promote when it was coming oh, yeah. out. And I just thought it was like a crazy thing. Cause I, I think I downloaded like pirates of the Caribbean to it or something that I can watch on this like little screen on like an airplane or something, but it was just such a, like a progression forward from a technology
1: standpoint compared to what was before it, you know? Yeah. Well said, and a lot of people don't appreciate now that podcasts got their name from the iPod which was just discontinued. So the podcast outlived the iPod. And in those early days, even by like 2005, 2006, even after the term podcast caught on, everybody was like, well, we don't know if we really want to use the the word podcast because it ties us too much to the Apple ecosystem. And... uh, I didn't even realize they were connected. Yeah, it's really funny. And Apple wasn't behind it; it just got turned there. And everyone was always worried that Apple would just come around and like sue every podcast for using this term. But I guess Apple just figured it better to to let that breathe on, on its So then,
0: own. so then, how did that how did that kind of segue into what you're doing now? Like you were trying to promote it or get certain people on, on the podcast or, you know, get media outlets to pick up some of the interviews. Yeah.
1: So, well, I ended up getting all the original, like kind of web two people on my podcast. So I got Reed Hoffman on back when LinkedIn only had 50 employees. I went first podcast he was ever on, went to his office to record it. I got Jeremy Stoffelman on uh, when Yelp was under a hundred employees. And then one of the people I had on my podcast was Ev Williams, who's doing this really hot podcasting company called Odeo. I think I broke the news that they'd raised $3 million in venture capital for a Series A. You
0: should, you should have turned this podcast into a venture fund. You would have, you oh, would have man. crushed it.
1: Yeah, if I only had any money back then or anybody would have trusted me with money back then, it would have been probably the top performing venture fund ever.
0: Did you have a sense that these companies were going to be like something successful? Or did, you, did you just happen to know these people were like ran into like what they were doing and just like, Oh, this is, interesting. I, I
1: believed in them. Cause like they were, I mean, I chose companies that were interesting to me. So like feed burner and LinkedIn, these were like, I thought they were the cool companies. So I felt like they would be successful, but I, it was, it was still, I have to admit impossible for me to imagine that they'd be like worth hundreds of billions, you know, like, Back then, in yeah, yeah. the early, because people like the, people were so down on the consumer internet back then, from the ninety, you know, from the ninety nine bust, that like back then it was like, oh, maybe Yahoo would buy them for a hundred million, and that'd be like a huge exit. Uh, not that like, oh wait, maybe they'll be a you know five hundred billion dollar public company one day.
0: Now, you, now you can have a company without a product and be worth a hundred, hundred million. If anything, you know, the product will hold money. you
1: back. Right. And there's something for people to poke holes in.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Where once you start like bringing in some revenue, it's like, oh, well, why isn't it more revenue? Why don't you have better margins or, you know, you're better off just having an idea.
1: Oh uh, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it, it's always funny that you're, you're kind of better off either having nothing or having something really good, but in the middle, that's where, uh, that's where it gets rough.
0: Yep that's that's no man's land. so 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 now 13 years on muckrack like how you know you decided not to raise money like how how have you gone 13 years and and survived this long? i feel like first off you know most startups kind of die after a year and then the pr- chances that they survive continues to get lower and lower I mean, you've gone through 13 years so you've gone through even you know economic downturns through through the company what what have kind of been some of the highs and lows of the, the last 13 years running the company? Sure. So
1: actually maybe, you know, just to tie up the origin story, which I think sets the the basis for that. So I have Evon with Odeo. I follow that Odeo doesn't work out. Meanwhile, I was trying some other companies of my own that didn't work. That I'm happy to talk about Like I tried launching a podcast advertising business in 05, which in retrospect was 10 years too early. It's
0: the tour but, but
1: I have Evon. This was back by like 06 maybe and and then i i'm following how odio is going Odeo doesn't work out it was also too early to podcasting i'd stayed in touch with ev and then i saw he pivoted to a side project of his called twitter so that led me to sign up for twitter way early on back in 06 i got my first name on there i'm just at gregory on twitter i was the first gregory to sign up is that what you still have right now still at gregory on twitter and also instagram now wow pretty good so i'm witnessing these early twitter days and um i'm seeing that there's no way to know like twitter was really interesting because you could create content for people other than your friends whereas i was early on facebook but facebook was still locked down just for your friends there was no idea that you're gonna you know be a good content creator on twitter sorry on facebook it was just you're posting posting photos for your friends uh, that no one else can see I'm like, oh, that's interesting. People are creating content on Twitter, but there's no way to figure out who you should pay attention to. So I thought we could crowdsource who's the best on Twitter by letting people vote with a tweet, which no one had ever done before. So I pitched my now co-founder and we, and we kind of we're, were cooking up ideas and we're like, oh, what if we built a website where people could vote with a tweet for who's the best on Twitter? What if we, to get them to want to vote, let's call it an award, And tweets are short, so we'll call it the Shorty Awards and put up this website. We built the website in two weekends. No, you know, we didn't have a a business model really in mind yet, but we were like, well, we can build it in two weekends. So I think about a business model and it won't really, you know, the investment will be $8 to buy the domain name on GoDaddy. So uh, (laughs) we, we spun that up really quick. It quickly became the top trending term on Twitter. So we were like, oh shit, people going to want to come to this thing. So we dropped everything, organized the first Shorty Awards.
0: She did a physical award show in person? Yep, first physical
1: time. award show in person. It was profitable that first year. We got uh, both Pepsi and the Knight Foundation to sponsor it that very first year. And, uh, and and it was great. We got MC Hammer there. We got Gary Vaynerchuk there back when he was just a fine library guy. It was surreal. Yeah. It all came together very quickly. And it was profitable that first year. But coming out of it, one thing that really struck us was how much press coverage we got. So the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, BBC all covered it within 24 hours of launch. And that really struck me because when I was doing the podcast and stuff, I'd always try to get press. And I got some, but it was really hard to get the press to care about it. Then with the shorty awards, I didn't even try and we got all those press. So I realized like, oh wait, journalists are using social media to figure out what to write about and what to tweet or what to write about and then also to promote their work so like, this is interesting but there was no way to like find all the journalists in one place so then we decided okay let's let, launch a site where you could find all the jur- journalists in one place and we decided to call it Muckrack, a play on muckraker, the term for investigative journalists and the idea of like a news rack or magazine rack all the news in one place and again eight dollar branding budget what it costs to buy a free domain, open domain name on GoDaddy. So $8 later, we had muckrack.com. Do you have like a lot of domains just sitting in your account? Oh man. Yeah. When our, when our CFO joined our company a few years ago, he was like, what are all these tidy GoDaddy reoccurring charges? But <laughs> I like think we have over a hundred in the company. And then I personally probably have another, another hundred or so.
0: Are you sitting on any that are like crazy, like, you know, three letter four-letter type was nothing
1: too good. I was later able to acquire just Shorty.com. We started with ShortyAwards.com, so I think that one's pretty cool. Uh, and then I got my own last name, Gallant.org and net when I was in high school. So those are pretty good ones since I have to complete with... Uh,
0: so how... So how are you you spending your time at the time? You have the podcast going. You've got now the beginnings of Muckrack. You've got the Shorty Awards. You're kind of doing all of that at the same time. Yeah, so we
1: were, I I spent a couple of years in a super experimental mode where, yeah, I'm doing my podcast. We're doing the shorties every year. That was making money and kind of paying the bills. And then we launched Muckrack. It became very popular with, uh, we launched Muckrack in 2009. And then, but we didn't focus on it for like, over a year we launched muckrack and then we tried launching other kind of vertical sites. Like we launched uh, a site where you could see all the, uh, venture capitalists on Twitter in one place and another one, all the celebrities on Twitter in one place. So we launched a dozen sites like that. We, we licensed the platform to uh, American Express and Condé Nast, which helped pull in a little more money. Then we we launched like the first Twitter list website when Twitter gave us early access to the new list API, so we were really unfocused for a couple of years, but but able to be profitable. And then a couple of, couple of years into it, by like 2011, looking around and seeing like, okay, we got all this stuff cooking, but we don't really have anything that's scalable to take us to the next level. What we'd observed, though, of all the stuff we'd launched, Muckrack was um, become very popular with journalists. We have over 10,000 requests to get listed there. And then I kept running into PR people being in New York at the time. And all the PR people were like, oh, you do Muckrack? I'm using your site to figure out which journalists I want to pitch and to kind of keep tabs on what they're saying. So we're like, oh.
0: Was it very like centralized to New York that like the buzz was kind of building? Like everyone in New York that should be on it was on it, but maybe not the other cities. Yeah, yet? I think
1: that's right. Or I think we had other cities on it, but that just because New York was the media hub, it was like, you know, New York's a place where you're just most likely to run into a journalist or a PR person at a bar. Whereas if you're in some other city, yep. there's a few of those people around, but they're not that they're not the dominant industry. So I think it served us very well starting it in, uh, in New York.
0: Makes sense. Has that been, was that like the driving force from like a growth standpoint of just like the viral nature of just like word of mouth, you know, journalist tells their friend or founders, you know, entrepreneur tells their friend and and it just kind of grew like that. And has that always been the case for you all or have you done some, you know, heavy marketing and paid marketing. And stuff yeah,
1: that was universe. always the case, you know, uh, always the case in the early days. Cause we had no money, you <laughs> know, bootstrapping, but it's a great thing about yeah. bootstrapping. You have to find an efficient way to get to the market because you can't spend your way to yep. it. And I'd say that only really changed maybe like six or seven years into the business once we already had millions in revenue and, and, you know, the cash flow to support, uh, really paying for marketing,
0: uh. What, what was the turning point where it actually turned into something like, okay, we have a real scalable product that we can repeat and now bring on a lot of customers and a lot of revenue? Like, what, was there a certain moment in time where you kind of identified that this was super viable long-term? Yeah, you
1: know, it was really step-by-step. Like, we launched it, and at first, it only had tens of thousands of revenue um, a month, but I guess. Yeah, at the very beginning, you know, first cohort, I don't even remember exactly, back in December 2011, but... That was when, well, so what happened was we realized there was this opportunity to turn into a SaaS platform, We rebuilt the whole uh, website from scratch in 2011, launched a SaaS product December 2011, and then it was really just, you know, a steady line up, a lot of uh, development along the way. We, we kind of shifted over the years. We started with very much a point solution. Now we're, now we're kind of like a system of record for the PR department and does all, we do a whole bunch of things for them. But yeah, it was really just kind of steady growth. So, you know, there was definitely, I mean, there's definitely like that time in the early days of a SaaS company when you still got under, you know, I mean, you just think if it's two people and you have under twenty dollars or $30,000 in monthly revenue or, you know, under a few hundred thousand dollars in ARR, it's like promising and it feels good, but you're kind of like, hey, if, if my co-founder and I weren't volunteering our time or in supplementing it with other revenue streams like we had from the Shorty Awards, it would cease to be. So you you got to get to, you know, I'd say when you get to a few hundred thousand, then you're at least like have this feeling like, okay, well, it's still the two of us having to be superheroes, like doing five jobs each to make it work. But at least we can afford to, you know, pay ourselves a living wage to keep it going. And then it's like when, you know, getting towards a million in revenue is when I start to feel like, okay, we can support a, uh, you know, a small team and maybe I can at least not, you know, take the weekends off <laughs> and, and know that somebody else, you know, can cover a ship for me or, or deal with the basics. And then, you know, it just keeps ramping up from there.
0: How, how long did it take to get to some of those like major milestones, like, a you know, a million dollars in ARR or 10 employees or th- like. Thousands of customers. Like, what were some of the milestones along the way, and how long? Yeah, did
1: it it's take? a good question. You know, for us, um, uh, and again, you know, doing it totally bootstrapped and also splitting focused at the time with the Shorty Awards, it took a it took a, I don't know, at least two or three years, I think, to get to the first million in revenue. So it was a while wow for us. Whereas, you know, now I mean, we don't we don't give a we don't publicly announce our revenue, but you know, we we probably add. Yeah you know, now we're adding a million a month probably. So, so it's just wild to think that like it took several years to get to a million, you know, to get to a level of revenue that now is like an insignificant (laughs) addition to us. So, I mean, I, I have to say, you know, looking back, like it's just hard to appreciate the power of compound growth. And there's so much slogging through, and it's just so hard to get to the first million because no one's heard of you, and um, you have to kind of fight for every deal. And and you know, there's a lot to learn along the way with product market fit, and you just don't. And and this is the you know, and this is the funny thing. We're like right now, if we got if someone gave us funding, we wouldn't know what to do with it. You know, it's like we like like right now, we're making plenty of money, and the hard part is hiring the right people. Back then, if you gave me a hundred K, it would have been a game changer. Like, I mean, like I would have known exactly what to do with it. You know, we had a million pain points. We'd always fight over like who's, you know, whenever we got like the next hundred K in revenue, it's like, well, do we hire the salesperson or the programmer or the QA person or the first marketing person? So, you know, cash was definitely a big limiting constraint at the time. And it made it harder not having the cash. Uh, And we grew slower because we didn't have the cash. But now it's like, yeah, my co-founder and I own, you know, almost the whole company. And, uh, you know, we we also have given some of the company to uh, employees through through various equity constructs. Um, But, you know, it's been so much better for the team and us long term because we suffered in those early days of not having the money. But there is some degree to which not having the money forced us to be really creative with how we reached the market and how we built things that I think built a good DNA in our company that, that serves us well going into a, an economy like this where nobody wants to, to fund unprofitable companies where you know, we'd be in trouble if we were growing through the unprofitable model today.
0: Yep. No, it's a hard, it's a hard momentum shift to make when you go so far down the path of like growth at all costs. And then the you know, economic backdrop changes or the people that were giving you funding no longer are very interested in following on with, with more capital when you've already built the model that's like, oh, well, we, we know we're going to burn all of this and we just got to get to a milestone. So I think it's, I think there's a lot of companies that find themselves in that kind of spot right now of they were on one mode of operations and they quickly have to shift to this new mode, which is more sustainability, profitability building a strong business, um, which, you know, when you bootstrap, like you said, that's kind of embedded in the DNA. Like you just need to figure those things out. You have to, you know, ask those existential questions of how can we survive? How can we be profitable? And, and the, the growth stuff becomes kind of a luxury. Um, but I guess we can use that to transition, you know, for those not paying attention, like what do you, you know, what do you think is going on, on in the economic environment externally? Like, what do you, what are you seeing? There's a lot of stuff on Twitter. There's a lot of other founders talking about X, Y, and Z. There's some people that are all doom and gloom. There's some people that are like, you know, the fed's gonna have to tighten, uh, bring back, you know, bring rates back down and it's not that bad. And, you know, there's disinflationary kind of tendencies happening. Like what's, what's your take? And then also how important do you think like monitoring this stuff is for, for founders versus just kind of keeping. Yeah,
1: you know, there's all great questions. I, I think. The more people can shut it out and think about their own situation, the better. I mean, we started, you know, really this company with the Shorty Awards and then Muckrack right around 08 is all that shit was happening in 2008 with that housing market uh, collapsing and, you know, Lehman and Bear Stearns and all that. And, you know, for us, though, it was like, well, we had nothing to lose. We were just starting uh, and for me, it was like my best years ever up until that point. I'd spent, you know, 05 and 06, which people were looking in 08, people were looking back at 05, 06 as like the good startup years. And that was when, like, I think it was Sequoia put out their RIP good times deck. Uh, and, you know, but, but I was like, well, I was too early to podcast markets. So I actually struggled in like 05, 06 with my podcast advertising company. And then with the shorty awards and muckrack we like hit this growing pocket of the market so while everything was blowing up around me for me personally it was you know the best years of my career because i i got finally gotten product market fit in a in a group new growing area so i didn't have a legacy cost base um and i was in this explosive growth area so i think If you're an entrepreneur just starting out and you don't have or or you're profitable so you don't you don't have this cost base that's ahead of you it might be a great time to start a company because you're you're also now not competing as much for talent with these you know these companies that are just lighting money on fire to grow and then there you know there's also for you it changes your opportunity cost you don't have to turn down all these jobs paying a ton of money you can get more attention, and then it also means that you can get more. Like we were getting a ton of press back then, and like TechCrunch, which was at the time, you know, the dominant place to to get press and all that, because other companies weren't raising venture money, you know, nearly as much. So we were able to kind of punch above our weight class in the battle for attention, vis a vis, you know, this other market. So I think going into now, you know, like. I you know, I would try to stay away from just looking at universal advice. I think in good times and bad, you know, like universal advice is never, never helpful. But that's why when I would do my podcast, I I try to look more like, Hey, well, tell me about your experience. And it's up to the listener if that experience is applicable to them, whereas like universal advice almost never works. But I, I think, you know, it's a time that, you know, some people are going to have to be defensive now. If whatever their product was, you know, maybe it's a luxury good, that's gonna gonna stop being as important. Or if their plan called for raising a ton of capital, they might have to change their plan. But it could also be, you know, I think it's also an exciting time to look for opportunities. Uh, as you know, other other companies might implode or or have to change their plans. As for someone who's got a more bootstrapper mindset. Could be the best time to start a company or the best time to expand their company
0: 100 have you have you guys thought has this impacted your strategy at all like are you getting more aggressive are you changing you know financial models are you thinking about how important you know your services in the broader you know scheme of the economy and, and what your customers care about right now are you looking for opportunities to stay aggressive are there competitors out there that you're interested in or more market share that you want to drive? Like, as has it shifted in the last six months given the external changes? Yeah, you know, for, for us, there hasn't
1: been too much of a, a change. We, we've been fortunate in that we've been growing quickly. We grew, we grew our top line 75% last year, and we're expecting to keep up a similar growth rate this year. You know, we're always watching for signs of it. We had a good Q2, and we're feeling good about the second half of the year. You know, public relations... It's something that companies always need. And if anything, now it's getting harder and harder to do paid acquisition because of the death of the cookie. You can see it in Facebook's numbers that, that demand gen advertising is becoming yeah. less efficient. So earned media is something that companies, I think, need to rely on even more, you know, getting on podcasts like this, getting mentioned in the media. That's, that's the free and cheap way to, to grow your business. So, you know, our software in the context of that's a drop in the bucket, and then it helps companies do earn media better. So, I mean, we've always been cautious in how we've grown the business. We always keep our expense lower than our revenue. Imagine that. Um, so, so that's something we always are watching out for. And we've always dynamically budgeted, meaning that every month we'll adjust how much we're spending based on how much we're making, because uh, we want to make sure that we're we're spending less than we make, but also if we're making more than we expected, we want to invest more rapidly. And if growth ever slowed, then we'd slow increasing our expenses uh, accordingly. But so far, it's been going well, so we're we're bullish that we can keep uh, keep growing. We know we're in a big market and uh, got this growth rate behind us, and we weren't. We've never made ourselves dependent on having to raise money to keep growing because we've always grown cash flow positive. So because of that we don't have to readjust, versus, you know, all the advice you're seeing out there, that's these companies where like they're spending three times what they're making and it only works if they can raise money in six months. So now if they're being told, hey, even if you hit your plan, you can't raise your money in six months, you're gonna have to wait 18 months. And it's like, oh, now we gotta lay a bunch of people off to make a runway work. Uh, so that we don't run out of money before we can raise the next round.
0: Yeah, well, I think I think in general patience is kind of in short supply, you know, these days. You know, you've you've been at it for. 13 years, which I think, you know, for 90% of people in startup world is like an eternity, you know, and I don't think they can even imagine running the same company for 13 years, especially, you know, entrepreneurial people, they're very like ADHD. A lot of times it's like, you have this one idea and then you move to this next idea and there's always a hot new market. And, you know, there's not a lot of people with staying power, but I think it's interesting that you've kind of stuck with the same thing and you're you're compounding that growth now like, you know it's taking you say 10 11 years to now really get into the you know the home not even the home stretch but just like the really really in- impactful years because 75 percent growth compounding on a pretty large base like you know five yeah, the next 13 years are going to be incredible compared to the first 13 but it takes a while to get to that point where you finally break through and i think a lot of people either quit before then or they want to or they want to take like the shortcut by bringing the capital in so that they can get to the point that you got you know in three years or four years versus 13 but I think you know it takes time to kind of learn the lessons as well like you know I'm sure you've learned a ton over these last 13 years that help you for these next 13 that if you would have like tried to compress that into three or four years in the venture cycle you know, maybe you wouldn't have built the same type of business and it wouldn't be a sustainable. I think that's a great point.
1: Uh, And, you know, what you point out about the power of compounding, it's like, we've created more value, more enterprise value in the business in the last two years than we did in the first 11 years, because, you know, just 75, you know, like we more than doubled then, and it was so much harder to go from zero, you know, zero to where we were 11 years in, going from 11 years in to 13 years in was kind of just extending the trends, yet it's more value. So so it's hard to wrap one's head around. And I have to say, going back, I don't want to pretend that I have any less ADHD than the average entrepreneur. I was super unfocused, as you know, I talked about.
0: I mean, you were running businesses three businesses at the same, at the same time. time I was in my
1: mid-20s. If you told me then, like, hey, Greg, you're going to be doing muck Rock for 13 years, I would have said I... I can't imagine doing that, but I think what I didn't appreciate is that when you have a growing business, even though you keep the same job title, CEO, because you give it to yourself at the beginning, you really have a new job every two years because being the CEO of a two-person company has nothing to do with being the CEO of a 10-person company, and that has nothing to do with being the CEO of a 100-person company and now we're now we're almost 200 people, and you know it's a new job to me. Like I've never been the CEO of a 200-person company before, so I've got to learn all this stuff on the job. And then the second I get competent at being a CEO at a 200-person company, will probably be 300 people, and I'll have to figure that out. So it, it keeps it really interesting when you're in a growing yeah. business. I think even for someone who feels like they've got, you know, ADHD and they can't stay focused or they get bored of doing the same company, like so long as it's growing it'll keep presenting new challenges and it'll keep life very interesting.
0: Do you ever, do you ever get kind of pulled in the direction of, Hey, what if we wanted to turn this into a multi- billion dollar company and take on the broader PR kind of ecosystem and all the different problems that it has? Or do you say, Hey, we have this nice business that we can continue to compound and we do something specific. That's really great. And we're really good at it. And we're going to keep doing that over and over again, or, you know, where do you fall kind of on? on Yeah, we've,
1: we've kept expanding the vision and what the product does as it grows. So when we, when we started, it was like this point solution, like we're going to help you find the right journals to pitch. We launched that and then the customers were like, hey, listen, we don't like the legacy tools that we're using to monitor when we're mentioning the news and that we use to report on all the press that we get. Can you build that too? And we're like, wow, that makes sense. And then we looked, we're like, well, we could probably build it better because we can build it integrated with the pitching tool that we started with and make all the data talk to each other and tell the story. So we did that. And even today, we're, we're expanding our product team and our engineering team, and we have a very aggressive roadmap for increasing the functionality. So I think it's important to always be broadening what the company does, because at the end of the day, you're growing or, you know, you're growing or shrinking. No tech company is going to stay the same size every year. And it's fun to grow because all, all these smart people want to come and work at your company and everyone can get promotions and raises because you're growing. And it sucks to shrink because no one who's smart is going to want to stick around and stagnate their career. And and, and you got to deal with that. So I think, you know, I've always looked at it like grow or die and, and you got to figure out, you know, where, where's your next vector of ro- growth going to come from.
0: Well, how do you, you know, as a boot shop company, like you talked about budgeting based on like how the performance of the company is going, but you know, how do you think about like planning out some of those growth initiatives? If you say, Hey, we need to build, X, Y, and Z feature set or product line to be able to expand revenue by 5 billion this year. Is that something you do at the beginning of the year and, and plan that out? And then how do you, how do you kind of, you know, scale up or scale back on, on that, those investments throughout the year? Is it really month to month, like looking at where revenue is? Oh no, is, yes, it it's definitely
1: longer term planning. It's just that month to month is reevaluating the plan to make sure that we're not off course. So it, we've extended the planning more a, as we go forward. And I, I got to give a lot of credit now to the, uh, to the executive team that we brought on. Because by nature, I, I'm a, I'm a seat of my pants kind of guy where I like to just figure everything out at the last minute, which yep. is a great thing going from zero to one, but a really bad thing as you get bigger. So I've surrounded myself with a great team That'll, that'll plan it, our, our CFO, our VP of product, uh, so my co-founder, the CTO, our VP of engineering, they'll get, you know, we'll all get together and kind of map out, I'll, I'll kind of have a broad theme to like, this is what I want the product to do in a year, in two years, our VP of product will figure out, okay, well, here's what we can build over that time. She'll work with the CFO and the VP of engineering. Okay, well, how many engineers and product people do we need to build it? And then, you know, it's a lot of working backwards where it's like, hey, you know, if we need 10 engineers and three product people to build it in a year, like, well, they don't just magically appear when we want them. It's like, how far did you got to build in time? It's going to take time to recruit them. It's going to be two weeks before they start after you make them the offer. It's going to take maybe three to six months to ramp them on the code base before they can be at full productivity. So you have to kind of work backwards from all that same on the sales side. If you have a sales driven model where, Hey, if we want to add X, you know, if we want to add a million dollars in ARR next year. Our average salesperson does 300 K in ARR. Well, we got to have three fully ramped salespeople. Salespeople don't start out, you know, first day fully ramped. It takes them, I'm just making this up, you know, six months to ramp. So, you know, we have to start nine months in advance to like start the search, make the offers, get them on their first day, six months ramp and then have them sell that million dollars in revenue. So it's a lot, you know, it's simple math. Um, and initially I would just do it in a really simple Google spreadsheet with my, uh, you know, my early, early sales team and, and, and engineering team. Now, now our CFO has much more advanced models. But you just have to think all that through if you want to grow Once you get past having five, you know, first five or 10, when you have five or 10 people, it's all just frantic making it work. But to start scaling it up, it's just doing that really simple math of like, what do you need to do to grow and make sure that you're doing those things at the right time?
0: Yeah. I mean, growth doesn't, I mean, unless you're one of the hottest companies in the world, growth doesn't just like randomly happen. You know, it's something that you kind of have to deliberately, you know, either support or drive, you know, through, like you said, just simple math. Like if you don't actually have the reps to deal with it or the people to onboard them where you're not actually, you know, you're not filling the top of the funnel with enough of net new to then drive the the revenue plan for the years, it doesn't just magically kind of happen. But uh, I think every startup goes through kind of, a lot of iterations of planning, you know, especially when you're kind of bootstrapped in the beginning, there's not really the luxury of planning, I think sometimes, because you don't really have capital and you're kind of just trying to survive. And then you kind of move into the stage of where you've scaled and now you can be a little bit more deliberate. And I know for us, at least like it was kind of challenging to kind of turn the corner and become like a planning type of company that's more deliberate about things. And, you know, we've gone through like iterations of like, OKRs, and I'm actually reading this book traction right now on nice. eos the entrepreneurial operating system do you guys like do you have a coo or do you follow any sort of like standardized kind of Yeah, we're, we're big into OKRs. my favorite
1: business book is high output management by andy grove you got it oh this one nice have you read it yet
0: yeah <laughs> i read the first yeah half. the first gotta, half's
1: more yeah it. yeah the, the second half's really good too you know I think that book is great because it's written by an actual CEO, you know, Andy Grove, who is like famous for being one of the first employees at Intel and um, ran it and pivoted them. You know, they started as a RAM company and pivoted them into microprocessors, so what we know them now. Uh, and, and he writes in it that he wrote it more for like the middle manager. So it's like very practical and he doesn't have anything to sell you. He's not like a consultant selling you on his services. He's, he's just writing this for <laughs> to help other managers. He, he's always been one of my business heroes. His other books are great too. Um, but yeah, so I really like the OKRs. And we implemented them early. And I got to say, they were painful for the first couple of years. Like a lot of my team, it, t- it took a while to get the team to buy in. And we'd always get into arguments over exactly how to implement it. But it's been super powerful because it forces you in like this rhythm every quarter to decide, okay, what are our priorities? And then one of our core core values is transparency. And just by making it transparent to everybody at the company, hey, here's the top three company objectives this quarter. And here's what marketing is doing to, to support it. And here's what tech's doing it to, to support it. So it's never a mystery, like, well, what's what's you know, I'm in tech. What's marketing up to? It's like, well, go read the OKRs. Like, that's what they're up to. And if they're doing what's in the OKRs, then at least they're doing what they said they were. And if they're not, then you know they're not performing. And if you think the OKRs are dumb, then you should have said something about it when we were uh, we were setting the OKRs.
0: Yep. Yeah, and I think like in an environment like this where there's kind of external uncertainty. The more you have structure in like some sort of framework like that the more you can kind of just stay focused on you know your business and the internal because all you have to think about is like are we executing on the inputs that we said that we were going to you know the drivers of the business because if so then whatever's happening externally doesn't really matter but obviously at the the same point you do have to be aware of kind of what's going on externally but i think that people get a little bit more Kind of scared and nervous because they don't really have a plan and they're just like you know you know kind of being flown by the whims of the market. And the more that you have like a deliberate plan going into the year, the less. Well said.
1: Yeah, and I think worry. it's also great for a founder. You know, if you're like me, <laughs> unfocused. I don't know what I was. Would... Yeah, it's, it's I'm, like, the it's I'm the same way. It's a great forcing function know. to arm the team against me as the CEO because we'll set that. We'll set the objectives for the quarter, and then I'll get really excited about something and I'll go to our VP. Or-
0: yeah, I'm sure you you throw a bomb in their in their work and say, hey, what if we do this? And then yeah, like, no, exactly. and then they right, have it in writing. They are like, look, we agree to these things. OKRs. How
1: does this slide up to the OKRs? And yeah, I guess we took a supporter and battle up. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, you just so go so back
0: it's... to doing what you're doing. All right, guys, I get it. I'll, I'll put a <laughs> put a suggestion in. The but suggestion then you know, list. I
1: also find it's powerful because some people are like, <laughs> oh, well, I won't. We won't be flexible enough if we have the OKRs. You know. We, we gotta be nimble as a, a small company, but, but I found it's the opposite. It's like you don't have the OKRs or, or, you know, I don't think it matters what system you choose. You do traction or OKRs. I, you, what's important is just pick one system and make it work for you. And, and you know, maybe, and we, we picked, you know, we, we mixed a little bit Definitely. from other stuff, but but I found by having a system like OKRs, it, like there have been times where we're like, oh, you know what, we missed this. A competitor got ahead of us in this area. We. We really gotta move fast to catch up. It's like because we have the OKRs, now we can say, hey, look, we swapped out this one OKR that we thought was important. Instead, we're making this other thing the OKR. You can get everyone aligned on that. And then you have this really easy language to go to everybody at your company. And it matters more as you get bigger. But now I can go to a, you know, to our company, you know, a couple hundred people and say, hey, look, this quarter we've changed, we changed from last quarter. Now the OKR is this. Let's all get behind it and, you know, make your OKRs ladder up to the new company OKR. So I found it's kind of like, now I have more confidence that if the market changes, I can shift shift the organization's course to this new direction I want it to go. Whereas if we didn't have a system and and it was just everybody doing what they thought they should do, then I kind of wouldn't, you know, be like having a ship without a rudder. Like maybe it, maybe it happened to go the right way for a few quarters, but you find out you can't change the course of it when you need to, and you might head straight into the iceberg.
0: Yeah, but you can have the nimbleness and then tomorrow you say, okay, now we're focused on this, but if it's not within some framework, then it's like, how do you follow through and make sure it's actually being, you know, it's now the new goal and everyone's focused on it. I think the, the argument of like, oh, well, if we have this OKRs or something, we're not gonna be able to adapt quickly is kind of just an excuse for being messy, you know, and I think I, that was kind of me too, a little bit in the past, but it's, it's, it's not that they're meant to be rigid. It's meant to just be deliberate and thoughtful about, okay, we're actually working on some sort of, you know, we're rowing in the same direction as a company in general. I think that that's the main thing is like, as you get, you know, you guys are 200 people, we're around the same thing. As you get so many people, it's very easy for people to be running in different directions that aren't aligned with where the company's trying to go. And it's, you got to make sure that you're really, making the most of the resources you have. Yeah, well Some said. People, and I think,
1: you know, looking back, maybe you don't, you don't need them when you're two or three people, but I think you do need them even when you're like getting to five or 10 because the sooner you start it, or maybe you don't need it, but I think it makes, if I could go back and give myself advice, I guess we started around 10 people and I'm glad we did, But but it's like, it's a muscle you need to build. So it's kind of like, you know, maybe you could start training for a marathon a month before the marathon, but probably better if you started to train three months before uh, similar thing where it's like, yeah, maybe you don't really need to attend people, but if you start, but it also takes a while and you got to go through a few quarters before you get it right. So I'd say the sooner you can start building that, that muscle of doing OKRs, or whatever the system is, the better off you'll be for when you're bigger and when you absolutely need it to, to run your company.
0: And and I think you need to figure out quickly if you're good at making plans and then follow through I and mean, following through on them and executing against them. Like you can have a team that doesn't have any plan going into the year. And it's very hard to like judge them fairly to say, Hey, did this person execute, is this a good leader? Because they didn't set out a deliberate plan and then you know, follow through with it. But if you have these OKRs or something. Then you have something to kind of judge their, you know, actions and, and output on a you know monthly, quarterly basis, whatever, and say, Hey, well, you said you were gonna do this, you didn't end up doing that, like why? What's the disconnect? Oh, it's because of this strategy, okay, then fill in the gaps. But otherwise it just becomes kind of an emotional critique of like, oh, I don't really like this person because they didn't really get this thing done. But you know, there's a lot of ambiguity in, in all of that, I think. So I think you you gotta be able to judge people fairly and have some sort of um, you know, objective. Way yeah, to well do said. It. So I, I got to say, looking plan. back, one mis-
1: like, you don't have to necessarily run the OKRs yourself as the founder and CEO. But I, I found one, mi- I think you can get a, a chief of staff or a consultant to do it. But I, I made the mistake early on where I tried to delegate it to like one of the department heads. And I found that was always a really bad dynamic because now they can't be a participant and they're kind of like, having to get their peers to agree to use the system. So it's a weird power dynamic. So it's always kind of messing. And then we finally got to a scale where I hired our first uh, chief of staff, uh, Teresa, who came, came to us from MailChimp and she took over running the OKRs. And that's been awesome. Actually, first I hired a consultant, then I had her take it over. But having the consultant and now the chief of staff run it has been awesome because it's like, there, I've never been a process person, uh, as you can probably tell from my, my lack of focus. So it's like it's better if you can have a process person, you know, there are people out there who love process. So it's like, like don't try to become a process person, <laughs> just find the process people. And then having them run OKRs has been so much better, both because at scale it takes a lot of time, so they can give it focus that I never could, but then also it just plays to their strengths. Yeah, that like it's holding people accountable. Too, and it doesn't know, have to be an aggressive way. It's just management. running, we'll do these weekly stand-ups, like how are you tracking to your OKR? Are you making progress? Is something amiss? Uh, that helps a lot. And it doesn't have to be the CEO. I mean, at the end of the day, the CEO has to be looking at it and you know, yeah, CEO has to be the one to address it if the person is falling off and diagnose the problem, like maybe we didn't set the right goal, maybe they're not the right person to execute it. Maybe as an organization, we didn't set them up for success to execute it. But in terms of just like checking in and knowing if it's on track or off track, that could be a chief of staff or a consultant. And, you know, I I think unless you're a process oriented CEO, probably better to have it be someone else.
0: Yeah. And and as CEO, I I imagine you want to make sure that the things that people are putting in there align with where you want to take the company in the next three to five years, you know, they're getting you closer and closer to the ultimate vision you have. And you want to just make sure that there's that high level. Yeah. hundred percent.
1: that, that's something well. else where, again, you know, I never thought about this in the early days, but at, at scale, it's all about like, yeah, having that three to four year vision, breaking that down to like, what do we accomplish in the next year? And then of what we're going to accomplish in the next year, what are we accomplishing in the next quarter?
0: For sure, What's, it's hard. is, you know, I think we have a similar kind of structured <laughs> brain or lack of structured brain, and uh, you know, definitely finding people to come in to to play to their strengths is probably better better than trying to fight the the Yeah, well, try I, I think that's
1: beautifully know. said. And I I, I uh, found like I used to have all this anxiety when we were small. I'm like, oh, and we're bigger. I'm going to have to do this thing and that thing that I'm not well suited for. And then I learned as we got bigger, I, mean, I definitely had to grow in many ways and get better at many things. But I. A lot of the things I thought I would have to get better at, like, say, financial modeling, I found well, I never really needed to get better at financial modeling. I just had to hire the right CFO. Or I never had to get great at figuring out how do you, you no. know, express the product roadmap in the optimal way to show everyone what you're going to build in a year. I just have to find the right VP of product. So I, I found a lot of like what I thought was like a what problem ended up just being a who problem.
0: Gotcha. And you guys don't have a COO. Yeah, that's right. So I I found
1: COO, you know, there's no standard definition for what that can mean at some companies. It means like I find usually a COO just means they do whatever half of the company, the CEO doesn't want to do. And I felt we, we weren't, that wasn't the right move for us. So what I did was like, okay, I still want all the functional heads reporting to me, but I needed a lot of help just building alignment, you know, for all the functional heads, like running the OKR meet. Like I found the pain point I was having was like, I wasn't doing a good job running the OKRs and I wasn't able to ded- dedicate the time. I wasn't doing a great job running the executive meetings because I never put the time into making the agenda in advance and thinking through what should happen at those meetings and checking in with everyone to figure out, are people prepared? You sound <laughs> good, just good like to me. know I'm not the only one in this boat. <laughs> uh, this was like a good confessional here. And then also, I was still running like the even the all hands meetings, and I was finding I was like kind of playing moderator in all these meetings rather than like being a participant. So instead of thinking like, what do I want to say to the company, I was just thinking like, are we going to end this on time? I gave five minutes to someone; is five minutes up? So that's where I was like, okay, instead of getting a, a COO and changing all the reporting structure and losing half the reports, like I really need someone to just focus on doing all these pieces. And that's where I saw, you know, it's a relatively new thing with this role chief of staff. And it's also confusing because at some companies, people just hire like really a secretary or executive assistant and call them chief of staff. But on the other end of it, a chief of staff is really like kind of like some people describe it as like a COO without the reports. And that's the end we wanted to. So we ended up hiring uh, Teresa, who has an MBA, spent was uh the first uh mba to get hired at mailchimp and kind of was with mailchimp from when they it's also yeah exactly they've been a a great uh, kind of role model company for how far you can go bootstrapping and yeah she was with them from when they were about our size at the time to to a year ago you know and they were over well over at that i don't know exactly how many people but thousands of employees so no i'm sorry
0: they sorted it into, into it, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, amazing. They sorted uh, an, eg- an exit that a, even a VC-backed company would dream of, and they did it all bootstrapped. So anyhow, she got to see all that. So I was like, she seemed yeah. like a great part, and has been a great partner now to um, kind of know what, we're, what we need to do for the next level of scale. And she took over the OKRs, made them a lot better. I never really appreciated what an art it is to running a meeting, both an executive meeting and an all-hands meeting. So it's like just, you know, A, just having someone who actually focuses on that, which I never did, made a huge difference. And B, having the right person to focus on that makes a huge difference. And then she's able to take like every kind of strategic quarterly initiative, get the right people together, make sure it's on track, give me a heads up if something's off and then I can help on that. And then by knowing that she can kind of keep an eye on the quarterly execution so i I can kind of trust her to do that now and it's like hey no news is good news i know like if i'm not hearing from her that there's something wrong that we are on track with our quarterly goals so it lets me think further ahead and I, i can spend more time thinking like what do we need to be in a year who are the right executives we need to recruit on the team to execute the year year goal and then i can start thinking about okay what do we want to be in three years and five years what are the big product bets we can start making now for what we need to build to be a much bigger company in three years knowing that i have a partner i can count on to execute the quarter so that having bringing that role on board has been a game changer and then compounded even more by getting the right right
0: I was I was gonna say if you let's if you looked back ten years ago and let's say you only had eight people on the team ten people on the team let's say you only had five hundred k in the bank would you justify hiring her Ooh. let's say she's two hundred and twenty five thousand dollars a year do you think you know, that would have honestly, been honestly right probably back not
1: then? if we were bootstrapping I mean if I had lots of money uh, if, you know then I would have been like yeah sure she would have been awesome back then but but bootstrapping where you got to fight over every next dollar. I mean, we weren't paying anyone at the company anywhere near that kind of money. Uh, You know, everybody at the company, myself included, I think at that scale was making under 100K. Um, And we were, so it's like, yeah, we just couldn't have afforded it. Or if we we did afford that role, uh, it would have meant too many other sacrifices. And then also a lot of her skills we couldn't have taken value from. Because like when you're five people, like running a great executive meeting doesn't really matter that much. It's just, can you ship the feature this month and can you close the next deal? So there's a lot about the right people at the right time.
0: I think it's interesting because there's, there's a big push. Like if you look at a lot of the venture back companies that, and they might have 10 people, 15 people, you're seeing a lot of chiefs of staff at the earliest stages, like seed stage startups. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a weird, you know, setup because like, to your point, one, you know do you know really what the business is at that point to like have that person coming in really scaling everything and you know are you involved enough as the founder to you know to build out the foundation where you need to then have this abstraction layer in between you and 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 the rest of the company already at that stage i think you know there's a lot of talk about like why that probably isn't a good idea but you're seeing Yeah i think it's cuz
1: like the happen. dominant you know, like mode of growth over the last few years has been lighting money on fire rather than bootstrapping so it's like I could totally see the argument for that if you're like well we think we have product market fit someone just gave us 50 million dollars to scale so you know once you've accepted that then it's like okay well i'll bring the chief of staff and attend people because i know in the next 12 months i'm just going to hire 50 people but if you take a step back and you challenge the assumptions like well Is it a good idea to hire 50 people if you're not 100% sure you've really nailed your product market fit? And not just that, but that you figured out a scalable go-to-market strategy, maybe it's not such a good idea. And I think that's what we're going to see a lot of painful unraveling now where people people didn't prove out the fundamentals before scaling up. And they made all these decisions premised on the idea that you just got to scale up so quickly. And once you start to unravel those assumptions, it can be really painful if you're like, well, I mean, I would hate to be in the position where I got to go to my team and be like, hey, we hit the goals that we agreed with the board were the right goals to hit. But because of these external fund, you know, because of the market changes that were outside of our control, we now don't think we can raise the next round. And because we're not profitable, we got to lay a bunch of people off because we extended our run to extend our runway. Like, yeah, that just sucks and it's going to be demoralizing. I mean, I, I, I'm i sure, you know, people can make, you know, I'm sure there'll be companies made stronger for it and there will be companies that survive and have to go through moments like that. But, you know, it sucks and it's avoidable if, if you start the company in a bootstrapped way. You know, it's not possible in every market. So I don't I mean to sit here and say, hey, everyone should do it like we did They're marketing environment.
0: You can't build like a, a biotech company or something. Yeah, exactly. Right? So yeah, won't we'll work in biotech for five years. Maybe it you know?
1: wouldn't even work in a super competitive market, right? And like, look, I'm not gonna second guess Facebook for raising venture money or Google for raising venture money. They they had unique market opportunities where it paid off. But a lot of companies just raise more money than they should have, and it's gonna be more painful than it needs to be. That's where you have to contrast that pain because there was a lot of pain to bootstrapping, as I mentioned, in those first days where you don't you can't even pay yourself. You you can't have really experienced people around you. You you know, you're not growing as fast as you can, but you got to weigh that pain to the pain of maybe scaling up too fast and doing unnecessary layoffs. So I'd rather, you know, if your life circumstance can support it and you can have the bootstrap pain, it's potentially better than the other kind of pain. And then the upside can be really awesome where, you don't have to build, you know, even though a lot of bootstrap companies will end up having venture-sized outcomes like MailChimp and the scale we're at now, we, we could have a venture-sized outcome if we wanted one, but you don't have to do that. Like, you bootstrap a business and you get stuck at $5 million ARR, like a lot of people would dream of having a $5 million revenue company, right? If you run a $5 million ARR company at a 20% margin, it's a million dollars a year of predictable revenue. Like, that's not that shouldn't be a failure that should be awesome and then you could spend maybe it'll take you five years to get growth back on track but that's five years of taking a million bucks in profit which is awesome and employing
0: and i just uh i just had andrew from micro acquire on on the podcast the other day and you could take your one million dollar evita you know SaaS company and sell it for like 10 million on there and your life's completely changed for the rest well of Well said, life, so. yeah.
1: And you might make more money, right? If you bootstrapped it to ten, sell it at $10 dollars, $10 yeah, that's enough money. You can live a pretty good life and never have to work again. I mean live a great life, you know you know, you could live a great life and never have to work again. Versus if you,
0: Just not in, Miami, not in Miami. Just not on the Venetian island. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: So. Maybe in uh in Orlando you could be living very well. I am
0: yeah, yeah, you could, you could buy Shaq's old house at the big uh, basketball court. Exactly. <laughs> yeah.
1: All
0: right. I got I go one last question before we wrap it up. But you know, if they're, you know, for the founders that are listening to this and maybe they're in one of those precarious situations where they took on too much money or maybe they didn't take on enough money or they were in a very growth mentality and now the market shifted. Yeah, you know, what would be your biggest piece of advice to them of like how to navigate these next, you know, few months, you know, for them as a company? Yeah.
1: So my advice and, you know, I, I want to be humble here and that I've never, I've never been in that situation. Though I, I mean, I have been in situations where I've had to look at the zero cash data early on, but I would just really focus on doing, I, I find whenever I have anxiety about numbers, I find the spreadsheets always a solution, just, you know, Instead of having abstract anxiety, actually spreadsheet out, like, what's your zero cash date? Really challenge the assumptions in it to know, like, what's a realistic zero cash date? And then think either through, like, what could you do to be more aggressive with cash flow and, you know, more and push off payments as much as possible? And and this might be the first time someone really realizes the difference between cash flow and revenue. Venture back companies don't think about this because they have all the money in the bank, but you know, you can have revenue, right? Like I sign a, a deal that you're going to pay me uh 10 K over the next 12 months. And I could say, Oh, uh 10 K I added to the ARR. But when you're, when cash is tight, it's all about the cash. So really think about um, can you get your customers to pay up front instead of paying monthly, you know, maybe offer a discount for it. This might be the first time if you, if you raise money early on and you never, Had to run accounts receivable yourself. Like, look under the hoods of your AR department. Like, are you invoicing the customer the second they sign? Are you getting them to confirm receipt and tell you that they they've actually sent it to their accounting?
0: The big big difference between revenue and cash collections.
1: Well said. Yeah. So like, focus on cash. You know, same with your expenses, right? Like, if you do have to spend money, can you get the vendor to agree to let you pay it in ninety days rather than in thirty days or you know, maybe get the, your vendors to agree to monthly spend rather than annual spend. So like focus on that cash, make sure your financial model is totally focused on cash. And we did, it was probably dumb in retrospect, but I think, I think it did help us. Like we, we were cash basis accounting for the first several years until finally I woke up and realized we could save a bunch of money in taxes by switching to a curl. But like either way, do cash basis reports, make sure your financial model It's all cash basis, meaning that, you know, it's showing you when your cash comes in and when your cash goes out, not when you're recognizing revenue and when you're recognizing the expense because no, no company goes out of business for being unprofitable. You go out of business because you ran out of cash. So it's like just become, you know, even though your investors say they care about ARR and, and, and gap revenue, like yeah, report it correctly for your investors and for your taxes. So you don't go to jail, but like, when it comes to doing your planning, like you gotta be all about cash.
0: Yeah. I mean, even Amazon, Amazon was unprofitable forever, but they had a lot of free cash flow. you know, given the way that they collected and when they paid out vendors and all that stuff, they could just keep in the business and keep reinvesting, even though they weren't super profitable in the very beginning. So like we look at cash conversion cycles a lot, like how quickly we get paid, how quickly we pay out. If you have inventory, we don't, and you guys don't, I don't imagine. Um, it's super important to optimize those.
1: Yeah. And everyone made fun of Amazon for a decade, you know, in the 2000s, everyone was like, oh, Amazon still doesn't make money. Look at those idiots. And it was like, no, they're just cash, you know, they're optimizing for, for their cash flow and they were growing like a weed. And now, you know, Be- you know Bezos is the only one laughing uh, on either end of that bet. But yeah, it's so important to look at the nuance and people are always like, oh, are you profitable or unprofitable? It's kind of irrelevant it's are you cash flow positive or cash flow negative and if you're cash flow positive then you don't have to worry about all this stuff um
0: no unless i mean at the end of the day you're trying to be cash flow positive for you have know, to keep reinvesting and then you're you know you might sell the business or something by the time it even matters you know that your net profit is is positive or something you know so cash is the fuel it's the oxygen that, that drives the business so Awesome. Well, it's been a, been a ton of fun, a Miami to Miami uh, podcast episode. We I probably could have done it in person, but I didn't have all the equipment to set it up. This is, this is a little bit easier. Um, Next time we'll do on. it on also, the also uh, Swag Up Yacht. Yeah, either that or we'll do it at the uh, the Lido Beach Resort there, uh, the standard, right, right outside on the water
1: there. Oh, perfect. Um, and I know you just made our swag. I don't have it in person yet. Otherwise, I would have worn it all for this, but... No- by next time, I'll have all my uh, the
0: follow the follow up episode. Perfect, yeah, the follow up episode. Like I said, when I get to our warehouse tomorrow, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw the hat on. I'll send you a picture. Great,
1: and then you can have a before and after photo of me.
0: Yep, <laughs> exactly. Awesome, Craig. Well, thanks for joining.
1: Great, thanks for having me on, Michael.
0: Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. More episodes are on the way. If you want to keep the conversation going, suggest questions or nominate guests for future episodes. You can reach me on Twitter at Michael Martucci. Good luck and see you next time.